Five scores! Rick Vaughn. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Vaughn. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 47 of Squid and the Ultimate Lease Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Lease Fan, and joining me as always, my winger, winger Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things in the fall? Oh, without golf, it sucks, but it was nice, and it was a beautiful day today, and I, I worked out, but I would have loved to have played golf as opposed to working out, I can tell you that. Well, it's not a lot of fun for anybody anywhere, and hopefully they get this thing settled sooner than later, but it's easy for me to say sitting here in Florida. But our guest today, Squid, was born in, speaking of from a ways, born in Stockport, England, raised in Markham, Ontario, went undrafted and signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1984, where he'd play on and off for eight years, voted one of the top 100 Leafs of all time, played in 1,235 games with six teams over a 20-year career, scored 421 goals, 512 assists for 933 points. I think we've pumped his tires enough here, Squid. Okay, so let's please welcome to the Ultimate <laughs> Leaf, Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show, Steve Stumpy Thomas. Stumpy, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. I'm just uh, a little bit unhappy that I'm the 47th guest <laughs> you've had on your show. <laughs> well, you know, there, there's a lineup to get into. To, to, like, Squid's so popular, he can't help it. They're calling him from everywhere. Well, this high-quality high podcast. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, listen, we, we actually share a favorite watering hole in Markham. I'm going to let you know the secret here called the Duchess. Yeah. So a lot of our hockey buddies are pretty grumpy these days with that off limits. But I got to tell you, a little secret, Squid is working out now, as you heard him say in the introduction, because I promised him I'd get him a skate with our Duchess team so see if he can crack the lineup like you did a couple of years ago. So how do you keep him busy these days? <laughs> well, that's a tough thing to do. And you know, I got to give a shout out to Paul. He's uh, he's uh, he's hanging on by his his uh, his, his uh, fingernails there at the Duchess right now. So uh, if anyone's listening and they get a chance to order some takeout from uh, the Duchess there in Markham on Main Street, Markham, uh, that'd be really helpful for Paul. But uh, what have I been doing? I, I, I'm kind of echoing the same sentiments as Rick. I've been um, I've been really missing uh, the last month of golf uh, since our, our club opened. Actually, uh, opening day, I got a chance to play once, and then that afternoon, they shut the whole thing down. So I haven't swung the club since then, and I've only played golf once since, well, that day since, uh, uh, I think it was September last year. So uh, there hasn't been a whole lot going on. I've been doing kind of the same thing as Rick. I've been having, uh, you know, three or four workouts a day, so I've been trying to get myself in half-decent shape. Um for when I have to get a chance to put shorts on and that's short sleeve shirt. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there hasn't been much going on. I'll tell you, I've, I've been doing some, uh, some of those, uh, you know, those um, greeting um, things on, uh, on, on the, on the phone. And yeah, uh, other than that, I haven't really done anything. Just nothing really. Well, I was going to say, before we get started going any further, Squid and I love the nicknames and we talk about this all the time and you've got a dandy. So how'd you, how'd that one come up and who labeled you with Stumpy? Uh, I guess it was one of the first couple times I came in the dressing room and I had uh, that, that one particular time I had a, just a pair of shorts on and no shirt and I was walking into my stall and uh, 
And uh, uh, Billy Gallego looked over at me and goes, look at this guy. He looks like a stump. And ever since that day, it was it stuck. And I'm like, I can't get rid of him no matter what I do. You know, I, I, like to, I, I have to. I probably have to say that it's uh, nothing anatomical. It's just, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just the size of my body. I, I, I'd like to know how many nicknames Billy V has given to people, uh, because it's probably in the dozens uh, over the years. Probably 30, 40 people that he's probably given nicknames to. Well, who, who are who are? What are some of the examples that he's uh, he's uh, he's doled out? Oh, I can't even remember, but there's there was at least seven or eight in Toronto. Yeah, when, right. we, were, when we played there, I mean, probably screaming Lehman would be. Yeah, I think he came up with that one. Yeah. Stumpy. Uh, what else did he come up with? Uh, Jimmy Justin. Crack Corn, I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> Jimmy Crack Corn. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh God, who knows? I mean, there's probably a lot of them that came out that initiated by him and carried on by others. Well, he was a really, he was a fun guy to be around. That's oh, yeah. He was a lot of fun. He, was a, he had a great sense of humor, and uh, he was fun to be around, that's for sure. Yeah, he's, he, he, we had it well. He was on the show, too, so we've had him. So we've heard some of his stories, too, and some yeah. of his run-ins with some of the guys. But yeah. we want to take it back, uh, Stump, and go back to speaking to the earlier, playing for the Markham Waxers and then on to the Marlies. Yeah, um, well, I... You know, I, pl I played minor hockey in Markham, and then uh, you know, with the Markham Waxers being in my uh, my hometown there, Markham, um, I think they thought that it would be a good idea to bring a local kid in, and uh, I happened to be that guy, I guess. And um, and then when I got there, uh, I had the great opportunity to play with uh, Adam Oates for two years, so that really helped my uh, my career. It gave me a pretty good pretty good boost and a pretty good confidence level going to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and then, and then from there, um, um, Frank Bonello, I don't know if you guys ever remember a guy by the name yeah. of Frank Bonello, yeah. who was the general manager with the Marlboros at the time. And uh, <clears throat> I was called up uh, in the playoffs and uh, I was fortunate to get the last four goals of the playoff, uh, that playoff year, uh, only going one round, but uh my last four goals were against Jim Ralph, <laughs> and, and, and then he, against Ottawa 67s, and uh, and then from there the Leafs uh, gave me an opportunity and signed me to a free agent contract in '84 in the summer. Squid. Well, so you played. You, you started at St. Catharines, and I mean, you came. You come up to Toronto, and. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know this is. I know what you're gonna say. <laughs> story. <laughs> so you have an assistant coach who who is talking to you when once you get there, and of course your your job, you come up, you're supposed to score goals. You were scoring goals in the American Hockey League, and that's that was was expected of you. And John Brophy had something to say to you, and you know, I mean, on this show you can say whatever you want, Stumpy. So what exactly did Brophy say to you? between periods of one of the games i gotta get it right um but i i i don't do this little um this this um uh, this story uh any uh, it should be told a lot better and the best guy to tell this story is gary lehman because he's got yeah. the john brophy voice right <laughs> but uh things weren't going so well i guess i wasn't moving my feet i wasn't taking the body like he wanted me to play um, and, uh, so Brof comes in the dressing room, he's yelling at a bunch of guys around the room, just picking guys out to yell and say something to. And, and he said to me, he goes, 
And Thomas, it's it's um it's forty miles it's forty miles to St. Catharines, but it's four thousand miles back to Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, I picked it up picked up my game a little bit and uh, tried to get her going, but uh yeah, it was 40 miles to St. Catharines, but um, to get back uh, to that NHL level after not, you know, getting bumped back and forth my first year quite a number of times, I think I, I, I think my my best time uh, coming from St. Catharines to uh, to Toronto was about 35 minutes. <laughs> I got pulled <laughs> over. I got pulled over doing 120 miles an hour on the 401. So what well, just, uh, just I get excited that. when I got called up. But just on that stuff, I mean, you're going back and forth. I mean, how is your mindset through all of this? I mean, there were a number of players in that team who ended up making the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I use Craig Muni as an example who was doing everything except driving the bus. Maybe he was driving the bus, but he couldn't get a sniff. Did his situations like that concern you that the opportunity may never present itself at the Maple Leafs? He eventually had to move on and won three cups with Edmonton, but that's another story. I honestly think that um, throughout your career, you, ne- you need um, the breaks to go to your way at some point. Um, for me, just being signed by the Leafs at that summer of 84, um, my first training camp, I broke my, Bill Root broke my hand in a hit, and I, and I went to uh, a rehab for six weeks and then was immediately sent down to, uh, to St. Catharines where I had the, the great fortune of playing with, um, with uh, Wes Jarvis, who was my centerman. And all Wes wanted to do was just give me the puck because I recognized I could shoot it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, a lot along the same lines as um, as my Markham Waxer days, where I got a chance to play with um, with Adam Oates. So I, I, I really I really believe that you need you need a few breaks along the way, and especially for mm-hmm. me being a non-drafted player and being a smaller guy out there, I needed every break I could get. But but if you're getting those breaks, you have to. I mean, you have to make good with the situation that you're put in, and uh, I was really determined to to um, to make the best of that situation, and uh, and it and it worked out pretty good. Um, you know, it's uh, I I, I, well, often, I I would say it worked out pretty damn good actually yeah. because you played twenty <laughs> damn years in the league. No, so. but I, I often look at it like um, like I have a I have a son that plays hockey, and um, yeah. and when he first started, uh, you know, he got traded to Montreal got called up for like 20 games or so and um, never really got an opportunity to play on a good line. He, he was always a fourth line guy playing six minutes a game. And, and I mean, it's when you have that window of opportunity in a game where you have six minutes of ice time, you have to, you have to do something special to pique their interest for another six minutes or eight minutes or, or 10 minutes. So, um, I guess I had the opportunity um, to play with you, Rick, and, and Billy D when I first got there. And uh, what a great honor for me to go and play on the first line of a National Hockey League team and a hockey team that I grew up watching. It was just the, a highlight of my whole career. And to get that opportunity to play with you and Billy D, um, geez, I had to make sure that I, I, I wasn't the anchor on that line. I think you were, Rick. Time. Yeah, until, until we collided at the blue line that one game. <laughs> yeah, you would have loved that, Mike. I mean, we're—I I don't know what the heck we were doing, but we were both coming flying up the I side. I think we were on a power play breakout or something. Yeah, and we were going across the blue line, and neither one of us saw the other guy. 
Boom, and we're both down. We're both laying on the ice. Guy Kinnear, he, he didn't have a clue what the hell to do. He just, <laughs> I think he stayed on the bench. I don't even know if he came on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't know, but I remember getting up before you, buddy. <laughs> there was no way I was going to miss a shift by getting hit by my own player. Well, you, you didn't have as far to go as I did to get up. So. <laughs> well, I was going to say, now let's, let's talk. You've talked about some of the players. So let's talk about some of the coaches. You had Dan Maloney at the first, and then the polarizing John Brophy. He gave you a nice welcome to the NHL, as we've just heard. Uh, apparently, the first period with the Leafs, as we just heard about. How was your relationship with those guys? And maybe speak to something. You obviously had probably a run, and maybe you didn't with Brof, and maybe some of the instances around him. Well, I remember I remember with Brof, um, I, I think he liked the way I played, but he want, he really pushed me to be a player that he wanted him. He wanted the type of player he wanted me to be. Um, I think he knew I had the um, um, the ability to shoot or, or score. Um, but uh, you know that physical physical um, attribute in my game, I think he brought out to a certain extent. Um, uh, but I have a good story about Brof. I remember I remember uh, going up to. Uh, uh, Halliburton, but on our way to Halliburton on a snowmobile trip, uh, this was during the all-star break and they had, we had four days off. And so me and Todd Gill and a bunch of guys went, a bunch of my friends went up to, uh, to, uh, Lindsay. And then from Lindsay, we drove up to Halliburton. And, um, and as it turns out, we, we all drove our snowmobiles. It was a really snowy day and we parked it in front of this bar and we went into the bar and all of a sudden I was taking my helmet off putting it on the bar and there was the whole place was fighting and I'm on, I'm on the dance floor with a guy and, and let's go. And we're, we're just going at it and fighting and, and Todd Gill's cracking guys over the head. And, stuff. <laughs> and um, so as it turns out, I got punched and in, in, right in my eye and I wasn't even looking. Some guy came and punched me. And, and so that was the end of it for me because I could feel my eye just going out like this. I could hardly see out of it. So I got back, put my helmet on, got back on the snowmobile, and we all started to go. I get back to uh, to the to the little chalet that we were staying at, and my eye was just a slit. I couldn't even see out of it. And this is during again during the um, the uh, All Star break. So I have to go back in two days, and I have to explain why I've got a broken orbital bone. So I go back and uh, I, I'm wearing sunglasses. I walk into the leaf room and the office was just inside the uh, the door to the left. And I'm I'm just I'm cringing as to what I'm going to have to say and maybe I'm going to have to miss games or whatever. But I walk in uh, Brof's office and I take my sunglasses off and I said, "Hey, Brof, you know, so I was in a bar uh, during this uh, this thing and some guy suckered me in the side of the face because I guess I played for the Leafs or whatever and he was a Hab fan and he looked at me and he's like." My eyes just out here like this. And he goes, I love black eyes. It adds character to your game. Get out there. Play hard. <laughs> <laughs> love black eyes. You just love them. So anyway, I, I finished that plan. I put a visor on, I think, and played. But uh, that was pretty scary. Now, any, any other memories come to light with him? Well, just all the stories that the, the guys tell about his past. I mean, you know, you had him, Rick, in uh, in Birmingham, so I'm sure he had some, some. He did some some things. I, one story I do remember was in the minors, and in the minors, the facilities aren't nearly as good as uh, as um, as what we're used to at the National Hockey League level. 
Um, and, um, and there was a table in the middle of the dressing room and it had, it had a red Gatorade that had purple Gatorade on it. And it had, you know, all that, all the Gatorade stuff. And just beyond it was a, a coat hanger with all the players suits and ties and shirts and everything. And after a period, we didn't do so well. And he came in the room and took a hockey stick and just took all the all the drinks off the table and just absolutely saturated everyone's clothes with like <laughs> pink and purple and red and all that kind of juice. So uh, it was crazy. Well, I had the I had the privilege of playing for Brof as a 19 year old. Yeah, and I got to tell you, what a what what a way to break into pro hockey. <laughs> To have Brof as your coach as a 19-year-old, yeah, and the imagine. things that he would do. Um, the best story I remember is he went around the room one game after a period, and he just he roasted every single guy, and he oh, was yeah. making his way all the way around the room, and then all of a sudden he stops at Paul Henderson. Sorry, guys, I gotta I gotta plug my phone in here. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah, all of a sudden he stops. Keep going, Squid. Uh, at Paul Henderson, and he—he—the first time and only time I've ever seen Brof lost for words. He didn't know what to say because he didn't want to—he didn't want to say anything to Paul like he said to the other guys. Yeah, exactly. So then he just looks at Paul and he goes, "Hey, maybe you can talk to the big fella up there and he can give us a hand because these guys are brutal." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, what a way to be introduced to pro hockey, playing for a guy like Brof, and the characters that we had on the team yeah. uh, were unbelievable. I mean, like, we had a bunch of older players. We had our six 19-year-olds, but we had older players. They were playing backgammon a half an hour before the game for money <laughs> and where you change into your, yeah. your, you know, put your clothes and everything. And they're in there playing backgammon for money, and I'm thinking, what the hell are these guys doing? Like, we got a game in a half an hour. Well, one of one of the one of the funniest things, and one of the things that really opened my eyes to, you know, where I was, the situation I was at, was we just finished filming that uh, the movie Youngblood in the summer of '84, and then, you know, they're telling us that we're going to have the opportunity to skate. That we'll have we'll have ice time for you. And there was myself and Pete Zuzzle and Paul Cavallini, and there was other guys that were. NHL players and and uh, we're going to their first or second training camps, and uh, as it turns out, they didn't tell us that there was like three or four two hundred thousand dollar cameras on the ice at the same time. So anyway, I got I got to camp, um, and our camp, if you remember, Ricky was over at um, at uh, Belleville, my first camp in '84. Oh God! So it was like lap after lap, and and this rink turned out to be an Olympic sized arena. So if you can imagine how much skating we did, so me not being in the best shape I wanted to be in for my first training camp because of that movie was, uh, so we did the skating on day one, day two, we had, uh, uh, we had scrimmages and I got, I got hit into the boards and I broke my hand with uh, Billy root went down to the minors. Like I said earlier. So I rehabbed for six weeks, my first practice back at, in St. Catharines, um, with the saints. And, uh, I get on the ice a little bit early. I'm the first guy out there and I'm like, this is pro hockey. I'm in pro hockey right now. I'm making, I'm making $25,000 playing pro hockey. This is awesome. So I get there, I'm doing some stretching. I start skating around. I'm shooting some pucks and stick handling a little bit. 
guys are trickling on the ice um, periodically coming out. Again, I was probably out there about 25 minutes before practice started. So guys would come on the ice. We'd be passing a few pucks back and forth. And then probably about five minutes before practice started. Um, oh, mind you, Claire Alexander was on the ice 20 minutes before just working on his slap shot. And he was our coach. <laughs> so about five minutes before practice starts, two guys, which I, I probably shouldn't name because it's pro- I don't want I wouldn't want them to throw me under the bus. But two guys roll on the ice before they get a step on the ice. They take their helmets off and their gloves off and leave their stick on the bench, step on the ice and skate laps around, uh, take a couple of slow laps around the rink with a coffee and a cigarette in their mouth. Be five <laughs> minutes before practice starts. They have a styrofoam cup of coffee and a smoke in their mouth. And they're skating around the rink and they're just talking to each other. And I'm like, oh my God, where am I right now? This is pro hockey. This is crazy. I got to get out of here. So, well, that's a, that was another funny one that I remember. I was going to say, you know, growing up in Toronto, as you talked about, you were a Maple Leaf fan. You played for two recognizable junior teams. So you were very well aware, not only as a fan, but as a junior player, how highly held the Toronto Maple Leafs were amongst the city. So a couple of things here. Number one, how emotional was that for you to be now part of this iconic franchise? And number two, how did life change for you once you started playing for the Leafs? Everywhere you went, you would get recognized. Somebody would know you at the store, at the movie theater, anywhere you had a little bit of exposure playing for the Marlies, I would say, but this must have just been well beyond your expectations. Yeah, well, I, I just got to start off by, you know, saying that, you know, I did grow up being a Leaf fan, and and uh, my dad used to tell me to put my pajamas on so I could watch Rick play uh, before <laughs> before the games. <laughs> <laughs> what an asshole. No, but you know what? Like, um Growing up as a Leaf fan and and, and uh, adoring the Leafs my whole life, um, you know, and then finally getting that opportunity to play. How did it change? Um, I, I think the biggest thing for me was um, um, my mindset as to bring in the consistency that I needed to play every night. My biggest motivation was I don't want the media to write sh- shit about me in the newspaper the next day. So that kind of spurred me on to, to being mm-hmm. – you know, I was good. I playing as well as I could play every night, and um, and uh, I mean, Ricky and, and Billy D, they certainly helped me out a big, a great deal. And uh, but um, you know, yes, you do get recognized throughout the, you know, throughout the city. Uh, it's not like I got any free dinners from too many people, but uh, I found myself <laughs> buying the dinners all the time. But uh, no, it's it just and just knowing that I had the opportunity to play for such a storied team. Um, uh, and I'll never like it, blue and white runs through my, my veins. Right. And, and I, I, you know, to be able to sit back after a career and say, I played for the Toronto Maple Leafs and that's a huge accomplishment for me. And I'm super, super proud of that. Well, for both of you guys, here's one. And I'll, you'll start off with you, Stephen, as when squid, you can jump in here too. As a player, did you feel at times you were carrying the heartache of a city that would have been starving for winter for so long? Um, I didn't really feel that because, um, you know, my first year in 84, we missed the playoffs and then, and then we went on to have some pretty good uh, playoff runs. Didn't we Rick in in, um, 84 or 85 and 86. And, and, and you could see the success of the team starting to build, I think at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went away to Rick and I got traded together to to, uh, Chicago. So we, 
I went away and played in Chicago. Then I went to the Islanders and then Jersey. And then I came back to Toronto again. And and the opportunity to go from the, the old Maple Leaf Gardens to the new Air Canada Centre was, was a thrill in itself. Um, and, and, then, and then once we got to the Air Canada Centre, we started to have some really, really competitive and really good teams that could conceivably have won the Cup. And so I didn't really feel the, heart, the heartache of, of, of how the public felt about mm-hmm. the Leafs because I was kind of wrapped up in what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were successful doing it at the time, you know, that I played there. And I, I'm, I'm not certainly not saying it was all about me or anything, but I will say that we had some really good teams and we had a good chance of winning, especially in between 99 and 2001. Um, but I, I certainly do feel the heartache of, of, um, of, of a lot of Toronto Maple Leaf fans. Um, I, I just, I always thought that, that, um, you know, I always thought that, you know, for the longest time since 67, there was just that, that feeling of, um, there wasn't a high expectation for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And now there is like super high expectation of them because, not only we haven't won in a long time, but but there's been a buildup through years and years to get to the point they're at now. And 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 if my message would be one thing, it would be just to that to those players, it would be just have no regrets. Don't 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 look back at the end of uh, of this season and look back and say, "Wow, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd have done that." It's just just have no regrets. Great. Yeah, that was uh, well for me. I mean, it was. Uh... It was more frustrating than anything, I think, the time that I spent in Toronto. I mean, I loved it every second of it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you're playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. You're playing at Maple Leaf Gardens. I mean, it can't, I mean, it can't get any better than that. And the frustrating thing was the ownership and how he ran the hockey club and how he wouldn't pay somebody good enough money to do a good job as a general manager. You know, we never had the, anybody who could make that deal at the deadline that could put us over the top. And I believe in 85 and 86, we probably had teams that with a little bit of a boost or with a better, you know, uh, system from our coaches probably could have done a lot better in the playoffs. And you know, we did get to the second round two years in a row. And then all, with Dan Maloney as our coach, and then all of a sudden they didn't want to pay him anymore and uh, any more money. So off he goes to Winnipeg. And that's when both took over. So, and that was, was a pretty good. There was like, like you said earlier, six or seven, 19, 20 year olds on that team that were, yeah, you know what I mean. So there was a really good mix of young and veteran leadership as well. So, I mean, and a lot of those players went on to have great careers. Yeah, and it's too bad they couldn't stick around in Toronto for a few more years because I really think something could have come of that. Well, we're yeah. t- just we, you touched on it, Squid. The the one. Person, the the one op- the one sort of uh, thorn in the side of everybody was Mr. Harold Ballard, and I'd be remiss if we didn't bring him up, Stumpy. And the, the thing about it is, speak to some of the antics going around that team with the owner, the wild coaches. I mean, you've already touched on some of the players. You were shaking your head. This is the NHL. I've worked so hard to get to, yeah, yeah. and if only the fans knew what was really going on. What was going to like? Boris saw me just giving the idea. He told us, and I've used this a lot. He'd arrive at the rink, see a crowd at the front of the dressing room, you're thinking, oh, God, what's going on today? And <laughs> just what's yes, going on in the yes. circus? Well, somebody somebody sent me a YouTube clip of um, 
of Harold doing an interview uh, <laughs> just recently. I sent it to Mike about women in the dressing room. Oh my god! Oh, that that was like classic Harold. Uh, he used to shuffle around the, uh, the the. I mean, he used to live in the building at the time, and he used to shuffle around and and. Uh, and, and we used to stay on the ice. A bunch of the younger guys used to stay on the ice for like an hour after practice. And every morning or late morning, Harold would come downstairs and, and he'd want to have a shower and jump in the hot tub. And there was me, Russ, Wendell. Um, we, were, we were just coming off the ice and he was in the shower. So Russ and, and Wendell, I think, I'm not going to put myself in that category. <laughs> Russ and Wendell filled up the hairdryer with talcum powder. And every morning he'd get the hair dryer and he'd be drying his hair. So this time he didn't even know, but there was a whole hair dryer full of talcum powder. So he flipped the thing on and he put it on his head and his whole face was just white. <laughs> and he was laughing so hard. He was, he just loved being around the guys and being, he just loved the, uh, like he wanted to be one of the guys, you know, and, and he just loved that, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that, the camaraderie the camaraderie and the funny stuff that happens mm -hmm. in a dressing room i think he really enjoys that he was a guy's guy well all, all the players all liked him personally they all treated everybody nicely he just didn't pay you as players and he just was the wrong guy to run the hockey club so yeah, everybody yeah. knew you weren't going to win with him as the owner and that's just kind of how it went so speaking right. of which along comes 1987 before and your part has been called one of the worst trades in maple leaf history yourself along with my co-host and Bobby McGeller swapped for Ed, Ed Olchuk and now Secord. Take us through that day. And I don't know, were you on a contract problem or some of the Leafs at the time or something along those lines? Yeah. But any inkling that you were going to get moved? It was his Squid, fault. Squid, you it can was his fault. Too. It might have been my fault. Well, I, know I, you were, I know you were pissed, Squid, but let's hear Steve's side. Too. I was making a pittance. I was making, like, I mean, in those days, I was making like 80,000 Canadian. And I was asking for like 130. Um, for on a three-year deal or something like that and uh, and I was in the weight room across the hall from uh, our dressing room and, and he and Jerry McNamara came in the off in, in the uh, weight room and he just looked at me and goes malalatet malalatet and he was pointing at his head like I got a big headache or something and and he said you got to sign this you got to sign it so at the time I had Don Meehan and, and Don was like ah, let's hold off a little bit <coughs> Then it turns out I get traded that summer, like a couple of weeks later, on a golf course. I think were we on a golf? Yeah, course? we were at the Telemedia Golf Tournament up in. Uh, yeah. Uh, where the hell is it? I don't know where it was. It was in uh, uh, somewhere up in northern Ontario. Yeah, not Nobleton Lakes or one of those places. Yeah. So it turns it turns out I I, I signed with uh, with Chicago and get two twenty, two forty, two sixty, US, <laughs> and that's a far cry from the one thirty. But in retrospect. You know, I was sad that I didn't. I didn't want to leave Toronto. I wanted to stay there for my whole career, for sure. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is that you know I, I didn't want to leave either. I mean, I thought you know this is where I want to stay. This is where I want to finish my career. Yeah. You know, hopefully I can play you know twelve, fifteen years here in Toronto, and you know, and then retire and 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 live here. But unfortunately, that that didn't happen, and. Uh, um, you know, it's funny because uh, when Stevie was talking about that, like after that first year in Chicago, which we both had pretty good years, and I scored 43 yep. goals. Yeah. Well, never mind Harold being cheap. Bob Polford was worse than him. He offered me a $40,000 
pain decrease. <laughs> after scoring 43. After scoring yeah. 43 goals. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, like, what the hell is going on here? Like, yeah. are they cousins or what? You know? Like, that was just like a big time old school mentality. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. These guys are all, they're all in bed together anyway. Yeah, well, they ran the league and they had Eagleson in one pocket, all of them. And yeah. they did whatever the hell they wanted to do. Exactly. Exactly. Well, in Toronto, you had a pretty co couple colorful coaches. In Chicago, you had another pretty out there type guy whose name comes up quite a bit on this show, Mike Keenan. Talk about your experience with him as a coach. Well, for me, uh, when we had Mike, when I had Mike, well, when, when Rick and I first got traded to Chicago, we had Don Mur or Bob Murdoch. Bob Murdoch. Sorry, yeah, Bob yeah. Murdoch as yeah, that's coach. right. That's and he right. was like, uh, he wouldn't yell at anybody. Uh, it was, he was like the, the polar opposite from Mike Keenan when he came in. And, uh, you know, Mike, Mike's got a reputation of playing some games, head games and mind games with his players and uh, doing some really unorthodox things to guys uh, uh, just to try and, you know, get the most out of them. Get, I, I, I truly think that he did those things so that that player would get so fucking mad at him that, <laughs> that, that, um, that you get a little bit more intensity out of their, in their, in their game. But um, you know, Mike. Mike used to uh, used to start me and Jocelyn Lemieux, um, uh, and he said, "If you don't get a hit in your first shift, you're not playing the rest of the game." So he he had us running around literally like chickens with our heads cut off, and um, and with with no rhyme or reason. There was no there was no system of a four check. There was no you know that we never for three years that I was in Chicago. We didn't work on the power play once. <laughs> Jesus. Not I got a good time. story. When our first year in Chicago, too, Bob Murdoch, like he said, he never said a word. Like, he was very, very quiet. We're down three games to one to St. Louis in the first round of the playoffs. We're in St. Louis for game five. And... He comes in after the first period and starts screaming and yelling and throwing garbage cans around. We're all looking and going, what the hell's going on? It's a little late, isn't it, for screaming and yelling when you haven't said a word all year? Yeah. And then that's when they went across the hall where the, the coach's room was, slammed the door. So there was him and uh, uh, Sutter, Brent, uh, uh, Daryl Sutter, and who was the other, uh, uh, the goalie? Uh, oh, Kluche. No, 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 I forget. Uh, no, it wasn't him. But anyway. Oh, Wayne Thomas. Wayne Thomas. So they yeah. couldn't open the door. Yeah. So they had to get. So we're on the ice getting ready for the third period, skating around. And they're going, where are the coaches? We said, well, we don't know. We said, we don't need them anyway. We'll start without them. And the referee said, no, we can't. So anyway, they had to get a forklift, or, or I mean, a, and put it through the door and pull the door off to get them out of the out of the room so that yeah. they can come out and coach the last period. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, right. were, were you on the ice when he got when uh, Dennis when Dennis Varga put up against were you there when he got put up against the glass by Doug Wilson for when Keenan was making you guys skate that day and he wouldn't stop. He kept circling instead of stopping on the red was line. Was that at Arrowhead Pond? No, no, no. That was in Chicago. Oh, okay. Um I, I, I remember I remember doing a, a, a a, a whole number of those uh of those those skates and uh yeah i remember i remember that uh vaguely um and uh i, I if i remember correctly it, like didn't you seize up and and, and yeah. greg gilbert yeah. seized up yeah. and guys were just cramping 
it was more it, like it was inhumane what he was making us do. And and you could only do what you could do until your body broke down. And this this is just it was ridiculous. Some of the some of the things and the antics and the head games and you know all the mind games that he played on players. It was just terrible. Oh, it was. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what. The only thing I will say is Mike, I thought was a pretty decent coach. I thought that he was well prepared. Uh, well, the assistants did a lot of the work, and I think I, I believe he ran the bench pretty decently. But when it came to everything else, I mean, you know, forget it. I mean, he just wasn't a player's coach. He wasn't, uh, he didn't give a shit who you were. Yeah, it's uh, one of those old school things. Like, it's, yeah, you can't exactly. act like that with players today. You couldn't, like, he wouldn't oh, last. God, no. Guys, guys no. wouldn't respond. They'd no. lose all their confidence level. And you'd have a, like, I don't know if that, like, if that didn't happen to Patrick Line this year with, uh, with Tortorella. You know what I mean? There's another old school type of coach that that didn't get the best out of uh, his best player, and uh, I I think these players these days have to be coddled. They have to they have to, they have to have a coach that puts their arm around them and said, okay, let's go. Okay, it's time to go. You know, I know I know you've gone through a bit of adversity, but we still believe in you, and and uh, now's your time to shine. And and that goes a long way for a player, rather than sitting them on the bench and you know paying them eight million right? bucks. Communication. I mean, you're not that far removed from being an assistant coach in the NHL. Right. And I think that communication with these young guys in the league today is so crucial that you, you know, sit them down and talk to them. And like you said, like, you know, give them a pat on the back. Say, listen, we know you haven't been scoring and things haven't been going your way. You know, you're, you're not playing bad. You're playing fine. We just need you to take it to a, another level, like one more level, and then you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, I, I was, um, I was oftentimes used as like a conduit as well for players to get messages to the coach or vice versa, more so the vice versa side of it, where Coop wanted me to, um, you know, convey some messages to him, if thing to those players, but if things continued to be, you know, on the same path with that particular player, then that's when Coop will step in and ask the player to come to the office and they'd sit in there and I'd be in those meetings every single time he brought a guy in the office. And, and you know, that player, every time that player came in the office was scared shitless to go in there because he didn't know whether he was going to get, he was going to get, uh, you know, scratched or what, but that kid left with a smile and he felt really good about himself after that meeting with the head coach. And, and, and I've never been in a, in a meeting like that with, <clears throat> with any other coach, even when I was playing or, or, you know, with Hitchcock or anything like that when I coached in St. Louis, but he made guys, uh, <clears throat> every one of those players to the player would go through an absolute brick wall for John Cooper. That's why his teams are successful. Well, Bruce Boudreau, we had him on one day and he was telling us when he first started with Washington, one of the mistakes he made was he realized that you're dealing with 23 personalities. You have to have sort of 23 different approaches on a daily basis. And Squid sort of concurred with all of that. And he used Mike Green as an example, because when he first came up, Green was his star defenseman and he made a mistake and he went down and lost it on him. And Green was done for the game. He just was emotionally a wreck. And then he realized what did I do to that kid? I can't do that. So the next time he made a mistake, you went down and encouraged him instead of giving it to him. And he got the most out of him. And that he readjusted as a coach yeah. to the way the players were and the personalities. And that's why he had such success. Well, that's what a, a head coach really is, is 
he manages the team, the personalities. Um, um, you know, the, the, the assistants do a lot of the day-to-day grunt work. Um, the head coach picks out the clips that he wants to show the team every day. Um, and that's not to take away any of the ability that John Cooper has as a head coach and the knowledge that he has about the game. But he's a guy that's more of the – that he manages the personalities. And you said it right. Um, one guy, one guy could be a player that needs to see something visually in a, in a video packet. Yeah. Someone else on the bench can, you can just go up to him and say, Hey, in this situation, we need you to do this instead of this. And he goes, Oh, I get it. No problem. No problem. But like I said, someone else needs to see the video and, and you have to, it takes a bit of time to recognize which players you can give a poke, which players you got to coddle. And, uh, and I think Coop's got that down pat. And and for me, my role was to try to be as positive as possible because I, I think I think that's how I got how a coach got the best out of me. Um, I see how it's uh, how a, a, you know players thrive when they have a coach that believes in what they do day to day and ship to ship. And I think you're going to get the best out of your players if you have a positive attitude. Granted, you're going to make mistake after mistake after mistake. That's when you got to pull them in and say, hey, okay, you've made the same mistake three times after I've told you. And let's sit down after the game. We'll go through a bunch of video clips. I'll show you what you should do and what you, the things that you have done wrong. And then we'll go from there. And we'll, But there, there are some guys that continue to make the same mistake. And, and that's, when, that's when that player goes in the coach's office and, you know, they talk. And, and – uh, and I think John's really good at it. In fact, last night's game was like one of the best games I've seen in ten years. The the Toronto or sorry the uh, the Tampa, Florida and Tampa Florida. game. That was an incredible hockey game. So entertaining. Now speaking of which, you enjoy some good years in Chicago. Then ninety one, you moved to the Islanders. You produced again then off to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Look. Stump, if it's any consolation, you didn't get moved for a couple of rolls of stick tape and a box of double bubble. You're like players like Secord, Olchak, Brent Sutter, Cloudy, Pepe Lemieux. These are real impactful players that are type of talent coming back for you. By now, instead of asking why, were you just kind of keeping your head down and playing just because that's all you can really do? Yeah, I I don't. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a hockey player. I I, I tried to throughout my career. I just I tried to stay away from all the, the political and all that kind of stuff that managerial stuff i just i just knew that i had to come out and play my biggest motivation was as i got older was like there's young kids coming in i gotta be better than them so so it didn't so i couldn't take a rest it was just you know it was i I was fortunate i i I had the the opportunity to score 40 goals i scored 42 with chicago and then i scored uh sorry 40 and then 42 with the islanders so i mean i was i was I, i i i became known for being able to put the puck in the net not like yeah. squid but but you know <laughs> i could i could do it and uh and that, be, that that made me a bit of an uh, uh an asset along with my you know my ability to be able to get into a few fights or or be physical so that 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 gave me the up op- not the opportunity that's why i'm coupled in with some of the guys that i was traded with or squid? Uh, you know. nobody Nobody had a, took the sweeper as good as Stumpy did. <laughs> I used to love that. He used to get it. It was like a one-timer, but it really wasn't. He would kind of pull it in. 
and and let it go at the same time. And it was uh, it, it was phenomenal how he could do that. I I, I don't know how the heck he did it because I couldn't do it. <laughs> well, I was a lot better at it, but you know, after when you play in beer league for so long, you never usually use it. But it's an opportunity to get take a pass, receive it, and take a wrist shot as quick as you can. And 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 the puck, the goalie, the goalie. If it's a two on one and it comes over quick enough, the goalie can't get over fast enough for him to save it. You got the, you got half the net. So I think I think one of the biggest assets I had was my release, um, uh, in regards to scoring. So um, I, I would say that. I mean, I've yeah. seen it many many times, and it was pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to well, say, I, Rick, I, I wouldn't well, even ahead, be Scott. able to carry your stick around, Rick. <laughs> Well, that's what everybody talks about. I weighed like 40 pounds. Unbelievable. Now, throughout your career, you played for some characters as coaches, but also you played for some legendary coaches. And let's start with like Al Arbor. Yeah. And then moving on to New Jersey, Jacques Lemaire, talk about those two. Well, you know, after my, my days in Chicago is when I, I learned how to play the game the right way. I, I learned like when I was in Chicago, sorry, in Chicago and in Toronto, I took the, the defensive side of the game a little bit uh, for granted. Um, I was never really taught how to play good defense until I, until I came to the Islanders and, and learned how to play defense properly with Al Arbor and the staff there. Um, and then I moved on to, uh, to uh, New Jersey and having a guy like Jacques Lemaire who really dissected the defensive game and put me in a role where I was like a checking forward. Myself, Brian Ralston, and Bobby Carpenter checked all the top lines on every team we played, and um, and 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 that just gave me that much more confidence in my game. Knowing now, after after that stint that I've had Ar Arbor and and Jacques Lemaire, I have that ability to play good defense, but I still have my offensive flair about me, right? So, um, and then when I went on after that to Toronto, I knew I could play good D and I could score. So that gave me a ton of confidence when I got to Toronto again. Well, talk about yeah, that so. going back to Toronto. Uh, you know, you sat, I mean, it worked once the first time as a free agent. Here you are going back a second time. Talk about this part, though. Having been away for 10 years, did you appreciate, and this is going to be a tough question for it. Did you appreciate playing for the Leafs more the second time, knowing how passionate Toronto fans really were, not only from a fan's perspective, but now you were a player and you're coming back as a player. Was your mindset a little different coming back the second time? Yeah, I think the first time I was a little bit young to really recognize. I, I knew where I was. I knew that the the uh, you know the importance of playing for a big club like Toronto. But the second time around was like, okay, I've been in the league for 10, 12 years. Uh, I haven't won a cup. Now, if if I was ever going to win a cup, I'd absolutely love to win it in Toronto. So so that was a, that was a motivating factor to to um to have that opportunity on some pretty good teams that uh um that like i said earlier could well have won the cup and and i i think that was like the one thing that stuck out was was the fact that i'm going to a good team um in toronto and and we haven't won since 67 and this is a great opportunity to uh you know <laughs> who knows like this what would it be like ricky if you ever won the cup in toronto I mean, well, I can't I, even imagine it. It would be absolutely, you know, and I said to someone recently, I said, like, imagine if the Leafs win the Cup this year. Yeah. With what we're going through right now with the pandemic would just ruin the whole goddamn thing because 
Toronto, if they win a cup, is going to be absolutely insane. And, you know, we had a decent team there. It's 86, 87, 85 even. We were getting better. You come back to the Leafs. But now you're a more round, well-rounded player, too. You're, you're a better defensive player. You can still score goals. And you guys have a, have a pretty good run there for a few years where you guys were, you know, one of the better teams in the league. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and that and that's 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 what I mean. Like when I when I mentioned that that opportunity to come back, knowing that I was coming back to a team that uh, you know, and I'm going to be playing with Matt Sundin, I'm, I'm going to play with Freddie Modine, and and I mean, you know, I, that sparked a whole bunch of enthusiasm for me, and um, and uh, and you know, being back in Toronto and them not winning the cup for so long, just the opportunity to just vie for the cup uh, fell a little short, but. Uh, uh, I think that was, uh, you know, there, there were times before that those couple of years, like the 93 team where, where okay, we've turned the corner with Leaf Nation. We've turned that corner. Now, all of a sudden, you know, there were some and, lean um, years after the, after the 93. And then, and then the, uh, the, our team in 99 to 2001 was another shining light on maybe the potential to go and become the best team and win a cup in the next little while. But that went downhill again. And now we're going through it again. And I'm so, and I'm so excited about, about uh, game one. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to watching all the games. I, I just cheering my leaf on. So now after 20 years, you've certainly played with a few characters throughout the year, coaches, owners, all that kind of stuff. What about some of the players who could liven up a room? Maybe some of the funnier guys and some of the best pranksters you played with. Uh, well, Rick and I played with, uh, did you play with Mark Bergevin? His uh, name yeah, came up. Yeah, Mike was, or Mark Bergevin was a funny, funny guy. Uh, um, geez, who, like, it's hard to remember, but there, there's, you know, every team's got 20 characters on their team. Uh, especially the good teams, the teams that are successful yeah. have, 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 like, they're oozing with character guy. Everyone's got their own little personality and everyone brings their own little piece of their personality to the, to, to the big picture. And that's what I, uh, is a big part. I think of winning teams. Well, we also, um, we love a lot of the pranks. Like how about a couple of pranks that you came over throughout your years that either maybe got done to you, you got done to somebody else or you saw done to somebody else. Um, well, I've, I've seen Ty Domi have his, uh, his dress shoes nailed to the uh, the bench when he, tried, when he tried to pick his shoes up to put them on. He could, they wouldn't budge. I mean, they hammered the nails in so deep that they actually hammered them underneath the wood so that he couldn't get them out. He must um, have been pissed. Yeah, he's Ty. Ty had one of his uh, pant legs cut off when we were on the road, so um, he was wearing one long pant and one short pant. <laughs> Uh, I remember all. I remember always going to uh, Calgary, and remember we used to go to Calgary, and then we'd go to all the uh, the cowboy stores because back then yeah. in the '80s, cowboy boots were a big thing. And I always remember going there, and I bought a really nice pair of uh, Tony Lama uh, uh, boots, and uh, <clears throat> so I wore them to get on the airplane to come back after our game. And uh, I took them off because they were awful tight on the plane. They got you know how your feet swell up. So I took them off, and then when we landed, I tried to put them back on, and there was no way I was going to get my boots on. So I found myself walking through the airport on the upper part of the boots. 
<laughs> you know, the upper part. I just put yeah. my foot in there and I'm walking through the airport. Like, you know, I was just, yeah, I couldn't get it back on. But anyway, like stuff like that, just, you know, I'm, I'm playing the, um, you know, tying a, a $5. When we used to, when we used to go through charter, not charters, but commercial flights, we'd all be waiting for the flight to board. And the whole team would stand there on the wall. We'd tie a, you know, a five or a $10 bill to a, yeah. to a, to a, you know, a thread, put it yeah. out in the middle of the corridor. And then when somebody comes to pick it up, you just pull it away. And everybody, all the guys were just dying of laughter. There's quite a few people. Well, we're well, it's funny. I remember those very well. I remember there was a few people in airports that would get a little bit pissed off when they when it was pulled on them and they they look at you and give you a dirty look and say you assholes and everything else <laughs> and then so that made us even party. laugh even more yeah exactly well stuff we've been having a great time with it we're just I, I don't mean to be cutting you guys off but we're getting down to the last couple of minutes here just we want to touch on a couple of things before we let you go number one 1986 the film young blood with rob lowe patrick swayze canna reeves you, Zez, and a couple of other guys were all part. How did that all come about? And how did you enjoy I, that experience? Yeah, you know, I just got a, I, I just was asked by a guy that was um, around town, and he asked me if I wanted to be in a movie. And I'm like, yeah, you know what, as long as I have ice time, so we'll go. And then, so he spent the summer filming throughout, you know, some rinks throughout the uh, the city. And uh, I got to meet uh, Rob Lowe and uh, Patrick Swayze, uh, Ed Lauder, um uh keanu reeves and uh although i don't keep in touch with those guys anymore uh, anymore <laughs> it was it was a really great experience to know that you know i was actually in a in a an mgm movie and uh, people still love watching it well we're showing a picture on the screen here now about patrick swayze did he get you with a towel shot or something in the dressing room with the yeah, towel he whipped, he whipped me with a towel that bastard yeah. <laughs> uh, you could probably take them now, Stumpy. Well, yeah, probably now I could. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> yeah. Geez, that's not you fair. Probably actually. could have then too. I would say I would probably. No, pick him you then. know what? He 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 was like a a kung fu guy. Oh really? Yeah, he was really tough. I, you he, don't want to like mess he, with him. He could kick a soda pop off the top of your head. That guy. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was pretty good. Well, there we've listen. We want to uh, just just one final thought. Um, your son Christian, you played international hockey for Canada a couple of times. He played. How proud were you as a father watching him play for Canada at the Olympics a couple of years ago? Yeah, that was a, that was a great opportunity from for him. Uh, went through, a, as Rick would know, with his own son, gone through a ton of adversity throughout the, a few three or four years there in the American League, and and finally getting a call from. Uh, from um, from Sean Burke, uh, and he wanted me to to uh, tell Christian on a conference call with the whole staff there that he had made the team, and that was a huge thrill for me to be able to do that. Uh, and our family went to Pyeongchang in South Korea to watch the Olympics, and what an unbelievable, wonderful experience! And you know, bringing home the, the bronze medal for him was uh, was a, a you know a phenomenal thing. I always look up to people who have. Uh, just competed in the Olympic Games, so I have to look up to him, even though he's shorter than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the both of you, you both hold the distinction of the only father-son combo to each score 50 in the OHL. Did you know yeah, that? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and um, and Oshawa Generals, when Christian was playing there, uh, uh, they, they, they had him and I on the bench, and they gave us a, uh, a stick that commemorated that, uh, that record, so that was really nice of them. Good, really good organization. 
Well, that's fantastic. Stump. Listen, we want to uh, thank you so much. Squid, one final comment before you go. No, you know, you mentioned that with your son. You're always proud of what your children do, obviously. Um, But what they follow in your path, and I know my son has done the same. You know, he's had a a little bit of a shot in the American League, like 290 games, but really never got a shot to play bigger than a fourth-line role, whereas I think he could have. I think he could have been a good third-line shutdown type player at 6'6", 245. I think he could do the job. Yeah. And, uh, but... Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're still proud of what your kids can do. And you mentioned the stick, the corroborative stick. I see them now for the thousands game. You get a not. You don't only get one stick. Then your kids get those little mini sticks now. I thought that was pretty cool I, when I saw that. I'm um, still waiting for my silver stick for my thousand game. <laughs> you know what I got? I got my game sheet. For that game, you didn't get you didn't get the silver. Did you get the stick? No, they, they. You know what's really funny is the guys took a collection too, and I didn't get that either. So I got I got a framed game sheet. That's what I got for my thousandth game. So yeah. I'm gonna have to talk to maybe Shani about seeing if he can order me a stick or something. I'll pay for it. Doesn't matter. But I'd like to have one of those for my fireplace. Absolutely, you deserve uh, that. I didn't get there, so I won't get one. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, we want to uh, we want to again stop. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. Great stories. We could talk to you forever, and uh, just good luck moving forward. And I'll catch you at the Duchess and buy you a beer one night. Oh, that'd be great. Do you, <laughs> do you still have the uh, the memorabilia? No, that's uh, gone. We've moved to the museum, but I've got we've moved to a smaller place in a condo, and I've got a big setup there. So I still have some stuff. We have to. You'll have to come good. and see that one with yeah, Bruce one yeah. day. I remember being down in the basement. That was so impressive. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Well, well I'll look forward to a beer, and I'll look forward to a ginger ale with you, Ricky. You got it. All right, Stumpy. Thank, 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 thank you so Stump. much. For, thanks for having me on, guys. It's always Pleasure a having you. to see you guys. Thanks, thanks man. Stump. Okay, ciao, guys. Thanks. Okay, well, listen, one of the great guys. You can talk to him all night. Just a oh, super guy. He's a great guy. Great the boys guy. just love him. You hear him giving Paul a shout out to the Duchess and all the guys. The guys, he just, he's just one of the boys. He's like, well, all guys are, all, most of the hockey pairs are like that. So it's yeah. not unusual to hear that. Just fantastic guy. So, well, we, the time just flies by. It's good. We've got a couple minutes left here. We just want to um, wish our guys luck moving forward in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see how things all go. We'll be talking about that. Watch for us because we're going to be doing pregame and postgame comments on Leaf Games. For all the playoffs, so watch for us. Uh, we'll be on Facebook, and we'll give you lots of notice on that. But in the meantime, look for Rick Vibe on rickvibe.ca. Some exciting news coming up in that camp. He's going to have a new line of clothing called Squidwear. Hats, shirts, coming to you fairly soon. You'll be able to order them. I'm it's looking for my a, free. I'm looking for my free free piece. It's going to be a little while, but I mean, there's a little, there's a little squid. example of what they'll look like kind of uh, on a hat. Um, and... Uh, and I'm looking gonna, for my copy, my pair to come, and my shirt. Yeah, you'll, you'll get one, Mike. You'll get a shirt. You'll get a <laughs> hoodie. Hat. You'll get it all. Don't worry. We'll be wearing them. I got Debbie Young in the other room, and Ryan. They'll all be, they all want to want one, too. So you'll be sending some down to the Wilson household. But, guys, be looking for that. We'll be talking about it in the next couple of weeks. RickVibe.ca, at RickVibe, and at Squid Ultimately Fan. I'll find us on Twitter. Go to TheUltimateLeaseFan.com on our webpage. Look for us. And, guys, we'll look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks for joining us.